it dawned on me this weekend that um, we're halfway through the month of August, and time just seems to be flying by. The other night, my wife and I, we uh, sat out at our fire pit, and it was actually chilly. It was a little chilly out there. It was nice to have the fire going, so got me aching a little bit for the fall. So, uh, but I got a feeling we've got a few more hot days uh, before we get there. Um, but it is exciting. Uh, we're getting ready to close out our series here in First Peter. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series uh, the second Sunday in September called Rediscover Church, and I'll talk more about that next week, but we're really excited about that. Um, Our life groups are going to be going through that series together. There's actually a book that we want to encourage everybody to read um, for the the 10 weeks that we go through the series. There's also a workbook that our uh, life group leaders will be using to lead uh, those groups, but um, we really feel like God wants us to understand what the nature and the purpose of the church is and what our role is in it. So we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, Right now, we're continuing our series in 2 Peter and looking at chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Joel, chapter 2, verse 1 says... Blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege that we have to come and worship you. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that we would worship you in giving you our attention and listening to your word and and applying it to our lives. And so, Lord, we just ask that this morning uh, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us. Uh, Lord, I, I know that this morning as we look at these verses, that these are heavy verses, but I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would motivate us to action, and Lord, that we would look forward to your coming, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Last week, we looked uh, at the first nine verses of chapter three, and we learned that in the last days, scoffers were going to come with their scoffing specifically mocking the things of God and the people of God, and in particularly the second coming of Christ and the judgment to follow. Peter wrote to encourage the believers um, to whom he was writing and to us um, to stand firm in the faith and to not give way to these scoffers, but to understand that, that they were coming and that the Lord's delay was not as a result of the fact that he wasn't coming, but rather he was being patient towards them, not wanting any to perish. And he says he wanted them to regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Now in verse 10, he points out that for most people, most of humanity, that For those who will be alive when the Lord returns, it will not be a day of rejoicing. It will be a terrible day. 
a frightening day, a day of terror beyond anybody's wildest imagination. And that's kind of where we're going this morning. And, you know, I'm just like every one of you. I I love to focus on the love and the mercy and the grace of God. But you really don't appreciate all that unless you understand the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the reality that there is a judgment day coming. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 13. As I said, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The day of the Lord that you see there referenced in in verse 10 um, is the very thing that Peter was pointing to back in chapter 2 when he was talking about the false teachers and saying that their condemnation is from long ago and that it was not idle and that their destruction is not asleep. And then he went on to say, and the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So Peter is is tying all this together, and now he expands upon the day of the Lord and how believers are to live in light of it. And so that's really the big idea for us here this morning, that that those of us who belong to Christ ought to live God-pleasing lives as we wait for the day of the Lord and speed its coming. So this morning, the way I kind of want to tackle these verses is by posing five questions that arise from out of the text. And, uh, and just trying to answer them along the way. And the first question is simply, what is the day of the Lord? I, I think a lot of Christians think they know what the day of the Lord is. And I tell you, as, as I began this message, I thought, finally, I'm going to get four verses. I'll be able to just kind of fly through this. No problem. Until I started studying. And the more I started, it felt like a black hole where you just got sucked in. And it's like, oh, there is so much here. And there is so much um, diversity in understanding what the day of the Lord is. It was mind-boggling. And I, I was telling you know, Trevor and a few other people, I think this past week, I said, it's been so long since seminary. You know, I, I've forgotten a lot of this stuff. But what is the day of the Lord? Well, in verse 12... Peter also refers to it as the day of God. In Zephaniah chapter 2, we read that it's the day of the Lord's anger or the day of wrath or the day of judgment. There's a lot of other terms in the Old Testament used to describe what the day of the Lord is. Now, the day of the Lord... The concept of the day of the Lord uh, would have been very familiar uh, to the Jews. 
Um, there are dozens and dozens of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the day of the Lord. Uh, the Old Testament prophets described it as a day of darkness, devastation, and damnation. Listen to how the prophets Zephaniah and Isaiah describe it. And this is just two of many passages. In Zephaniah chapter 1, we read, A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind. Because they have sinned against the Lord, their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed, for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And then the prophet Isaiah says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold more than the gold, the rare gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from within its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Wow. We don't like to read those passages. <laughs> and there are a lot more of them. And it, it ought to tell us who God is and what he's like and what he requires of us. And, and as I have quoted many times, that he will by no means clear the guilty. The, the, the day of the Lord, for the Jews anyway, was, was initially understood to be a day of vindication of both God and his honor as well as his people by judging the nations and the wicked people of the earth. The Jews longed for that day. But as God's chosen people rebelled against him, the day of the Lord was no longer something to look forward to. It became something to be dreaded, something to be feared, as the prophet Amos wrote in Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. 
Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? You see, God will not only judge the wicked nations of the earth, but he will also judge his unfaithful people. For the unfaithful and the unrighteous, the day of the Lord is a day of dread. But for the faithful, it's a day to look forward to. It's a day of salvation. The, the real question is, what group of people are we? What, is, what will be the day of the Lord for you? Now, the theology of the day of the Lord was developed more fully in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we read about the day of the Lord as the day of Christ or the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and other such references. And that's because the day of the Lord is centered around the second coming of Christ. It's, it's, it's focused upon his return where he brings final judgment and salvation. Now, there are several views on Jesus' second coming. Now, as soon as I said that, some of your minds are spinning, and I just want to put you at ease. Don't worry. This is not going to turn into a lecture on historic premillennialism or dispensational premillennialism um, or um, uh, postmillennialism or amillennialism. I can't even say it anymore. <laughs> Aren't you glad I'm not going there? Um, just, just know that some scholars believe everything happens all at once. <laughs> And others believe that these events happen over a period of time and in different ways. And though there are different opinions regarding the nature and the timing of these future events, Christians, true Christians anyway, really have more in common than you might think in this regard. Most Christians agree that Christ will return to earth suddenly, visibly, and bodily. He's going to come back the same way he left. That everybody will be physically resurrected, either to a resurrection of life or a resurrection of, of damnation. Unbelievers for their wickedness and unbelief, they'll be judged. Believers will be judged for their faithful service on earth. They would also believe that, that true believers will forever be with the Lord and that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's the timing of things. It's, it's how it all fits together that we don't fully understand. So whether it happens in a moment or over a period of time, the day of the Lord is when God reveals his glory, vindicates his name, destroys all his enemies, and establishes his kingdom forever. So that's the first question. What is the day of the Lord? Second question, how will that day come? Well, Scripture here tells us it will come like a thief. You can count on the day of the Lord coming, but you can't predict when it will come because it will come like a thief, like a missile heading for its intended target. It will soon arrive without any warning, and it will rain down destruction. So how does a thief come? Well, secretly, stealthily. A thief doesn't show up at your, your, your house 
knock on your door, wait for you to answer and invite you in. That's not how it works. No, he waits until you're gone. He waits at least until you're unprepared for him. And that's what Peter means when he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He will come unannounced and unexpected. His coming will catch most of the human race by surprise, but it should not take Christians by surprise. We are to be alert and watchful. And Peter expounds upon this a little bit more, a little further down, but, but I want to share with you what Peter is saying is nothing more than what the Lord Jesus himself said and what the Apostle Paul said. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 through 44, we read, therefore, Jesus is speaking, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Starting in verse two, he says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. What encouraging words are those? You are not in darkness. You know, those who have trusted Christ to save them from their sins no longer walk in darkness. We are now children of the light and we are to walk in the light even as he is in the light. There is no reason for a child of God to be taken by surprise when the Lord returns. If you are, you, you, you are being disobedient. You are, you are following your own desires and not the Lord's. And that calls into question your profession of faith. So let's move on to question three. What will happen on that day? Well, Peter already told us in verse 7 that the present heavens and earth are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But now in verse 10, he expounds upon this more, and he says this. He adds to what he has already said, and he says, the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is, this is where it gets a little tricky. How do you describe the indescribable? I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but think about the prophets of old, and even Peter here. They, they receive visions, they have dreams, they see things, future events, they're told of them, and they then try to put into words that which they have seen 
so that we can understand. I mean, it's, it's almost an exercise in futility when you think about it. I mean, you, you, you know, let, let's just assume for a moment you had a vision, you had a dream of something that happens 2,000 years from now and you had to describe it. I mean, you could only put in, you can only use the vocabulary that you have and the understanding of the world that you have to describe something which you have never seen, never experienced before. For Peter and other biblical authors describing future distant events, like I said, it can be an exercise in futility. But, but think about our role. Our task is to kind of figure out what it was that they were talking about. Perhaps another exercise in futility. That's why I think we have to have a degree of humility when we start talking about the end times. As we look at this and other related passages, I think we need to remember that apocalyptic literature is filled with imagery. It's, it's filled with symbolism. And, and, and we need to be careful to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Um, we, we need to make sure that we're consistent here because you can take a verse out of context and make it say all sorts of things. So the question that we have before us here in verse 10 is, does Peter mean a literal destruction of our solar system or our universe? Or is he referring to something equally frightening, but less than the total annihilation of all things? Now, scholars have debated this for centuries, whether whether. Peter and other references are, are talking about the annihilation of the present universe and the creation of a new one, or if it speaks of a renewed cosmos or creation that retains some continuity from the old. I'll simply say for me, I, I think the latter seems more likely, but it could be the former. And I, I think this way for several reasons, but primarily because of Romans 8. And I'm going to throw this out there. I'm going to let you guys wrestle with it and continue to study. Um, and you draw your own conclusions. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 22, Paul writes, he says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So if you look nowhere else, it, it appears that God's creation will not be eradicated. Rather, it will be set free from the effects of sin. Now, in addition to this, there are many Old Testament references that seem to indicate that the earth will endure, as well as prophecies concerning its renewal. But in general, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, it seems to me that God is more about renewal and transformation than he is destruction. 
I mean, even in the context of chapter 3, where he talked earlier about the flood. Yeah, God destroyed the world through water, through the flood, but the world wasn't eradicated. But it was cleansed, and it was purged. So it would be consistent with the context. Pastor and theologian Anthony um, Hokima said this, and and I think this is a good point. If God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos that the present earth, that, that God could do nothing with it but to blot it out totally from existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. And God will reveal the full dimensions of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. So whether Peter is talking about the total obliteration of the present heavens or the earth or not, the point is the same. And that's what we can't afford to miss. God's judgment is coming. His holy wrath is going to be poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth with a purifying and devastating effect. Question four. How are we to live in view of that day? Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now, Peter re iterates the destruction of the heavens and the heavenly bodies, which I take to be inclusive of the earth because he's already mentioned that. He is arguing that in light of this great and terrible day, believers ought to live differently from the world around them. I like what John Piper said about this. He says, the world you love is going to burn Don't give yourself over to the pleasures of the world. Don't devote yourself to accumulating money. Don't spend your life building monuments for the praise of the world. It's all going to burn. A life lived for the world will go naked into judgment. A life lived for Christ will be laden with eternal riches. That's the point that Peter is trying to make here. His argument is simply this, is that if Jesus is coming back to judge the world, to destroy the world, to judge the wicked, and to deliver the righteous, then then you ought to live in such a way that pleases the Lord even as you await his return. And I believe that Peter had at least four things in mind as he wrote these two verses Put another way, four qualities of a Christian that should mark our lives and the lives of anyone who longs for the return of Christ. So until he returns, we are to live holy and godly lives. 
I think that's very clear from this passage. And, and sometimes when you look at that, you think, well, isn't he saying the same thing? Not exactly. The word holy carries this idea of being set apart. God has set us apart from the mundane, from the, the common. He has set us apart from the world and he has set us apart to himself and to the mission of God. We have a different purpose for, for living and for life. God has called us out of this and put us into his forever family. He's given us a new purpose. We are new creations. And so that's what he means by holiness, that we should live holy lives. We should live lives that are set apart. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go to the grocery store, to the bank, that you don't interact with the people of the world. But we are in the world, but we're not of the world. And then when he talks about living a godly life, he's just talking about living in, in light of who you really are, a child of God, a, a, a king's kid, that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, that we're to live lives that are pleasing to God. That's what he says that we ought to do in light of Jesus's coming again. This is how we are to live. I mean, if Jesus came back in your lifetime, would you want to be found living any other kind of life? I think also he means here that we are to live in peace and with peace. You see, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only reason why we can look forward to his coming. That because God has purchased our peace, that we are forgiven, that we are made right with God, we, we don't need to worry about what's going to happen when Christ comes back. He's taken us home. We get to be with him forever. Eternal joy, joy and peace and righteousness where there is no sorrow, there is no death, there is no suffering. We, we don't need to worry what that day will be like for us. You know, some, some Christians, you know, you talk to them and, and they're like chicken little, you know? The sky is falling. Oh no, oh no, what am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? What are you gonna do? Trust God. <laughs> Trust God, what can I tell you, you know? You know, John, uh, Jesus in John chapter 14 said this, peace I leave with you. Peace, I leave it with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So we're to live in peace and with peace until he returns. And then I think we're to live with eager expectation. You see that there where it says, waiting for the coming day of God. Now, waiting for the day of the Lord doesn't mean we sit around twiddling our thumbs, doing nothing, living unproductive lives. That's not what he's talking about here. It's that we're to live with an eager expectation of his coming. It's an active participation, which he gets to in, in the following phrase, which leads me to my fourth point that I think Peter is making here is that we're to live purposeful lives as we wait, hastening the coming day of God. 
Now, Peter isn't saying that we are in control of when Christ returns or that somehow we can kind of force the hand of God. Only the Father knows the hour of Christ's return. You know, the times and seasons are in his hand. He alone has fixed them. So how do we hasten the the day of the Lord or speed its coming? I'm not really sure. I think the context helps a little. We just learned in verse 9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And what that tells me is God wants people to be saved. He wants them to repent and be saved. Well, how are people saved? By hearing and responding to the gospel. And how do they hear the gospel so that they can respond to it? You and I have to tell them. We have to share the gospel with people. So it makes perfect sense to me that the sooner we get to that, the sooner Jesus will come back. I mean, Jesus said as much in Mark chapter 13. He says, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, all the people groups of the world. And in the Matthew 24, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The end is not going to come until every single people group across the face of the globe has heard the gospel. And that still hasn't happened. So it highlights the need for missionary endeavors, but it also highlights the need for you and me to share the gospel with our neighbors, our family members, our friends, our coworkers. If we want to hasten the Lord's coming, then we need to be about the business of sharing the gospel. Perhaps we can speed his coming by praying for it. After all, wasn't it Jesus who said, pray, thy kingdom come? Paul prayed for it at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians when he said, Maranatha, come, O Lord. The apostle John prayed for it in the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. So what comes after that day? That's my final question. Verse 13, but according to his purpose, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for. And as I've mentioned previously, you know, scholars are uncertain if um, this is an entirely new heavens and earth or if it's a purified, transformed heavens and earth, transformed in a way similar to how our bodies will be transformed to be made like the body of Christ. I don't know how God's going to do that, but that's going to be so cool. Again, I'm inclined to think that God is purifying and renewing the existing heavens and the earth, that he is purging it of all evil so that at a long last, the world will be as God intended it to be, a place where righteousness dwells. And in support of that view, R.C. Sprawl writes, God has no design to annihilate this present world. His plan is to redeem it. We are not to understand Peter's words here to mean that God is going to burn up the universe and throw it away. 
There will be an end to the world as we know it because we find in this text the same language that we find at the end of Revelation of new heavens and a new earth. However, God is not going to annihilate the old order in order to create the new. Instead, he is going to redeem the old, shaping it into what he wants it to be. And just to illustrate that he's not alone in this, John Piper said, when Revelation 21.1 and 2 Peter 3.10 say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it doesn't have to mean that they go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. There is a real passing away and there is a real continuity, a real connection. I can't say definitively how God is going to establish the new heavens or the earth or what exactly it will look like when it comes, but I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to do it. Jesus is coming back. Judgment is coming. And the question that you need to answer, that I need to answer, is what will the day of the Lord be for you? What will it be for me? The dread of that day ought to put the fear of God in anyone who is not living for him. I hope you heard that. It ought to put the fear of God. It ought to drive you to your knees begging Christ to forgive you of your sin, which he will gladly do. But it should also motivate those of us who know him, who have been saved, to regularly share the gospel with those who need to hear. That's what this passage does for us. That's what Peter is talking about. And so if you're, you're here this morning, you're watching online and you don't have a saving relationship with Christ, I implore you, be saved today. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that you would not have to suffer this day and all of eternity separated from God. He requires that you repent of your sins, that you turn from your sins, and that you receive him as Lord and Savior in your life, and you live for him by his power, by his grace. He's simply a prayer away. I would encourage you before you go to lunch, that if, if this is you, that you do business with God, that you surrender your life to him. And then after you pray and give your life to Christ, you tell somebody about it so that they can rejoice with you. And, and I would encourage you to tell one of the elders about it so that we can put materials in your hands to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. If you're here and you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then I urge you, to live a holy and godly life in eager expectation of the Lord's return and be in peace. Live in peace 
with peace. And lastly, I challenge you to seize every opportunity God gives you to share the gospel. May, may it be a part of who you are. I mean, this, this past week, we had our carpets clean. Did you notice this morning? Carpets are clean. I had a three-hour conversation with a guy. Talked about Jesus for three hours. It was awesome. This past week or the week before, I can't remember, but there have been several people who've shared with, with me that they have shared the gospel with people. Ryan was privileged to lead somebody to Christ using the three circles, mind you. I, I, don't, I, I think that I get more excited about hearing those stories than I do actually sharing myself. But that's what God has, has called us to do. Trust him to use you to that end. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning as we look at your word. And Lord, indeed, it was a heavy word. It's a challenging word. But Lord, oh, so good. Because you hold out to us the promise of eternal life to all who will repent and believe. And so, Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be a single person in my hearing that's listening to this message right now that would fall short of your heaven. That one day we would all gather together with you in the new heaven, the new earth, rejoicing in what you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.